Hi. Uh, so I'm working on this with uh, uh, Rafaela and Anders, who are here, and uh, we're all at the Future of Humanity Institute uh, here in Oxford. So uh, to start with an overview, uh, looking at global catastrophic risks, which I don't need to explain uh, after so many good talks, uh, and in particular, uh, with a, uh, uh, a scenario that we're thinking of in terms of uh, what policymakers uh, need to know uh, in order to address global catastrophic risks. I mean, that's one of the central questions. And you can break that into three different uh, areas. Uh, one is, for a given risk this is, uh, one is the probability uh, that that uh, particular catastrophe uh, is going to occur. Uh, then there's the question of how much is at stake. Uh, the question of how much is it, uh, the question of the probabilities uh, is particularly mainly a question for experts in that particular field. Uh, the question of how much is at stake uh, is somewhat separate. So if you're looking at a particular risk, say in uh, uh, a risk that an engineered, engineered virus uh, would uh, be able to kill everyone, for example, might be very low probability, or an asteroid strike that could make humanity extinct, uh, or even smaller scale things. Uh, uh, the question of the probabilities is largely for the experts in that area. However, the question of how much is at stake uh, when trying to do a policy analysis in terms of working out how much resource should we direct to this very improbable, very serious event versus how much to directly saving lives in hospitals. Uh, you need to know how much is at stake. And that's, uh, so how many deaths there would be. But in particular, uh, it's very difficult in cases of extinction uh, events. Uh, some people, the, the conservative estimate for how bad that is, is that it's about six and a half billion times worse than someone dying, uh, for sure. Uh, and uh, then, it could be a lot worse than this. It's difficult to know how to take into account the effects of future generations being destroyed. Uh, moral philosophers study this. There's actually a large literature on this, uh, including lots of sensible things by mathematically literate uh, moral philosophers who uh, uh, have talked about this quite a bit. Uh, and uh, economists also have a lot of expertise in this area. Um, there are important questions about discount rates to apply to future generations and uh, similar uh, issues. So there is a big question of how much is at stake, particularly for extinction level events. Uh, and there's also the question of how to combine these. Uh, so the standard method of combining to work out assessment of a risk is to multiply the probability times the stakes. Uh, this, uh, uh, I think, is uh, generally a good method. Uh, some people go in for what's called risk aversion, where you, uh, you say it's worse than this. Well, assuming it's a bad thing you focus on the bad outcomes more than the good outcomes and you weight them in the distribution. There are various mathematical ways to do this. Uh, extreme versions of risk aversion are often called the precautionary principle or something like this. Uh, there's actually many things which get called the precautionary principle, so it's, you've got to be careful in that case. Uh, but there are extreme versions which say we should be even more careful about it than the, the damage of this risk or the way to evaluate it is even worse than just the probability times the uh, uh, magnitude. Uh, but you can, uh, there are these questions about how to combine them. They're philosophical questions, largely. Uh, sometimes in practice, they enter policy arena. But they're not questions, say, for particle physicists or uh, uh, virologists. Uh, so yeah, there are philosophical problems uh, for each. Uh, I mentioned them for number two and three. Uh, there are also uh, philosophical problems in the first ca uh, case. And that's what the focus of this talk is. Uh, and we're also looking at this, uh, uh, look, uh, looking at the case study of the Large Hadron Collider, uh, the LHC, which has been introduced already. Uh, and uh, we're going to look at uh, what we can say about the probability estimates and how that fits in with what's already been written in the, uh, the safety report, for example. 
uh, on the LHC. So uh, when it comes to estimating the chance of disaster, uh, the probabilities are often very low for these very big disasters, otherwise they'd be happening all the time and we'd know all about it. So often they've got low probability. For future ones uh, where they're unprecedented, such as uh, uh, superintelligence uh, was an example, uh, or nanotechnology, the probabilities might not be all that low. They could actually be quite a bit higher. Whereas for asteroid strikes, we know the probabilities have to actually be very, very low. Uh, we have this uh, quote uh, we found in a paper, uh, even though the risks were always minimal, it is reassuring to know that someone has bothered to calculate them. Uh, that was by uh, Aglashov and Wilson uh, in their Nature article, taking risks, uh, taking serious risks seriously. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, this, this uh, quote has this idea of, uh, of uh, assuming uh, that they're minimal before even going into the uh, research. Uh, in some cases, you, we do know that they're quite small. There's a question about exact calculations. We're, we're definitely in favour of, uh, of uh, taking serious risks seriously uh, and not also uh, uh, just uh, assuming beforehand that uh, a risk will indeed be very small, but instead taking it as an open question as to whether these things could occur or not and being very even-handed. Uh, small chances uh, can be very important in these cases. Uh, as an example, uh, a one in a million chance uh, there's a lot of scientific notation in this, uh, but because uh, we've got some very small numbers and some very large numbers and they collide and look at the exponents. Uh, so one in a million chance of killing a billion people, for example, and a catastrophic risk. Uh, this is uh, uh, equal to 1,000 expected deaths if you take the risk neutral version and you just multiply out these numbers, um, or worse than that if you're looking in terms of, uh, of uh, uh, risk aversion. So the basic uh, question here uh, to draw you into what we're, we've been looking at is a scenario. So suppose a, uh, a uh, report calculates the probability of a particular catastrophic risk as one in a billion. Uh, other small numbers will work, but let's just uh, focus on this for the next few slides. Uh, there's the question of uh, what probability uh, policymakers should assign to the catastrophe occurring. Uh, you might think uh, one in a billion because this report's just come out by experts in this area. Uh, we want to uh, answer this uh, and uh, we'll show, I hope uh, convincingly, uh, why the answer is typically much greater than what the report said. Uh, well, if the report says one in a billion, <laughs> you'll see this doesn't hold for all things. If they say one in 10, I wouldn't assume greater than that. Uh, so the report can be flawed. Uh, and uh, most reports uh, have some kinds of flaws. There are a lot of, uh, a lot of papers out there and uh, there are mistakes in them. Uh, sometimes the mistakes are not culpable mistakes. Uh, people, science may advance. Uh, we'll have some examples of that later. Uh, and if you're doing Newtonian mechanics um, a century ago, you're going to get some things wrong if you're looking at a whole lot of big picture questions about the solar system and large scale things or very small scale things. It wasn't their fault, uh, but they did get things wrong. If, if we're just trying to work out what the chance of people getting things wrong is, you know, we're not working out whether we should blame these people about these things, but trying to take a realistic big picture idea that science could advance a lot, things could be very different, People can make mistakes. Uh, so the chance is much larger than one in a billion. Uh, uh, in fact, it's more like one in a thousand. Uh, it's hard to get accurate estimates on this type of thing. Uh, but consider a sample of a thousand uh, serious peer-reviewed reports and think to yourself how many of them are going to contain some mistake in the argument, uh, either through uh, the underlying theory being incorrect in an important way or, uh, or a similar thing, even a calculation error. Uh, more than one in a thousand reports uh, claim false things. 
the one in a billion uh, that the report gave us is instead the chance uh, that the catastrophe will occur given that the argument is sound. So it's actually a conditional probability that we've we uh, found at the end of the report. Uh, it's stated normally as an unconditional probability, just one in a billion, but really it's the probability uh, given that everything else that's preceded in the argument, uh, often many pages of complex reasoning, uh, is uh, sound. So but there's a nice way to present this. Um, so this uh, uh, square here uh, represents the arguments view. And I don't know if you can see, I tried to lighten the background for this slide so, so this would come out. But uh, here uh, we have uh, uh, a black rectangle at the bottom here uh, as part of a larger square, most of which is white. Uh, so this is the idea that the black area uh, corresponds to, uh, in probability space, to the catastrophe occurring, and the white area corresponds to it not occurring. Uh, now, uh, that's the view from the point of view of the argument uh, and the report. Uh, but we can ask, what is the bigger picture? And we can consider uh, the probability that the argument itself is sound. Uh, so uh, now what we have is a uh, rectangle here. It, we've shrunk this, uh, this area down to a smaller area, which represents just the chance that the argument itself is sound. Given it's sound, uh, then we get uh, uh, these appropriate things of uh, no catastrophe and catastrophe. However, there's also this area here, uh, which we call the gray area, uh, which is, represents those cases in which the argument itself was not sound. Now, what do we know about what's going to happen if the argument's not sound? Well, not all that much. Um, uh, but this area often dominates. Uh, the gray area is often orders of magnitude larger than the black area. And so a lot of the probability uh, of the disaster occurring can happen within the gray area. And so ignoring the gray area is uh, a very dangerous thing to do. And we'll try to quantify that a little bit. So uh, what I've just shown you there, if you're a mathematician, uh, is uh, uh, some ideas from conditional probability. Uh, so let's set something up here, and uh, uh, it's useful to look at the maths. Uh, so if we, set, we say x represents a catastrophe occurring, a represents the argument being sound. These are two variables. We don't know if they're true or not. Uh, we've been told that the probability of uh, the disaster uh, occurring, given that the argument is sound, is one in a billion in this hypothetical example. Uh, we want to know the probability that the catastrophe occurs uh, unconditionally. Uh, so how can we do this? Well, there is a uh, famous uh, formula for doing this, and it's quite a complicated formula. Uh, but uh, uh, we can see that this, uh, this first part of it uh, is the probability of uh, the disaster given the argument being correct multiplied by the probability of the argument being correct. That represents the contribution that the black area has in, uh, in the catastrophe occurring from the previous diagram. Uh, this second term represents the probability of the gray, that the, the contribution that the gray area makes. Uh, and it's the uh, probability of the disaster occurring given that the argument is unsound multiplied by the probability of the argument being unsound. Uh, now, there are a lot of, uh, there are four different uh, uh, terms here that you need to uh, know about in order to get this calculation to work. And it's not easy, uh, but sometimes you can use some approximations. So we know uh, this first one is the result from our hypothetical report, uh, one in a billion. Uh, then we've got to consider the probability that the argument is unsound. And we were saying before that it would seem very brave to say that it's got uh, more than, uh, well, less than one in a thousand chance of it being uh, flawed in some important way. Uh, so uh, in that case, we can get estimates for these things. 
And uh, the final part is very hard to estimate. That's the probability that the catastrophe occurs uh, given that the argument wasn't sound. Uh, and it's very hard to say much about that. Uh, uh, one uh, influential idea in probability theory is to say that that is a half. Uh, we wouldn't say that in a lot of cases. Uh, but it is troubling. For example, uh, if you were working out something and you're worried there was a risk of disaster, you did a calculation, and then somehow some oracle, uh, God tells you, by the way, your argument turns out it's flawed, it doesn't work. Uh, future scientists will look back and say, no, the argument didn't work, it missed something important. Would you go ahead with this? Uh, well, the, uh, the chance, uh, we're kind of back to square one, and just to our previous intuitive judgments as to uh, what the probability of this thing was occurring was, the intuitive judgments could even be flawed at that point because there's a mistake in the argument which led to the intuitive judgments. So uh, it's problematic. It would be very difficult and brave to set the probability at greater than one in a thousand. Uh, so in this particular case, uh, let's, let's just use those numbers. And uh, the first term contributes uh, one in a billion uh, to the probability. The second uh, part contributes one in a million. The one in a million uh, dominates this equation. And uh, uh, the probability in this uh, hypothetical example uh, from our perspective ends up being uh, one in a million. Uh, these, I should say, are all uh, uh, subjective probabilities. We're not talking about objective probabilities in this talk, uh, but about uh, the, our degrees of belief that these events are going to occur. And uh, uh, the grey area has dominated the estimate. So the particular relevance of what I'm talking about to global ca catastrophic risks. Uh, so it's important to note that uh, we're not arguing for a program here of reforming all risk analysis to take into account these grey areas. Uh, that would be foolish. Uh, you can never completely get rid of them. Uh, arguments about what's inside the grey area themselves have their own grey areas. Uh, you can never trace this thing back and completely get rid of it. We're not claiming you can. Uh, uh, often not worth trying at all. Uh, for example, if the uh, probability uh, that the report calculates is 37%, uh, then if you use this sophisticated technique and you think about it for ages, the probability is going to be like 37% plus one in a million, uh, or minus one in a million, or something like this. But it's not going to be very relevant. Uh, however, uh, if it's a low probability, high stakes event, uh, then it can be very relevant. Uh, so uh, the new probability uh, can be many times higher than the original one. Uh, and also, if the stakes are extremely high, there could be a huge difference between a probability of uh, one in a billion and one in a million. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, we don't know two of the terms. Uh, but uh, even with uh, conservative estimates, we can get some rather striking results. So uh, let's look at ways to estimate the probability of uh, the argument being sound uh, slightly more accurately. Well, there are several ways in which an argument can fail. And in many cases, we can break up an argument into uh, three parts. Uh, the theory, uh, which is the background theory uh, behind the argument, uh, the model that the argument uses and constructs within that theory, and then uh, the calculations uh, that, uh, that are used in order to determine the probability. Uh, if any of these fail, then the argument's unsound. Uh, you can't always break it down this cleanly, uh, but in some cases you can, and it's very useful to do it. In the case we're going to illustrate, you can break it down. Uh, so the first one of these, uh, theory. Uh, arguments are typically based, uh, well, uh, always based, perhaps, uh, on underlying theories. Uh, so, for example, that basic theory might be quantum mechanics or uh, quantum field theory, uh, or it could be rational choice theory if it's an economic argument. 
there are heaps of possibilities uh, or atmospheric theories uh, uh, in climate change. Sometimes there's more than one theory that it's based on. It might need them all to be correct. Uh, sometimes it can be based on more than one theory in such a way that it only needs one of them to be correct. Uh, but you can take these things into account. Uh, and for the argument to be sound, the theory must be adequate. So we're not claiming here that the theory must be exactly correct. Uh, so Newtonian mechanics, we would say, is adequate uh, when considering uh, uh, collisions with uh, asteroids, perhaps. I, that's a guess. Uh, maybe, actually, it turns out relativistic effects are relevant. I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, in some cases, we wouldn't want to say that certain uh, arguments made in the 19th century, or say all arguments made in the 19th century are false because they didn't know about quantum mechanics. Uh, instead, we're saying uh, it's only, we only count this as a theory failure or theory inadequacy if the, uh, uh, the theory being incorrect was really damaging to the, uh, to the argument. So let's look at uh, uh, an example of theory inadequacy. So we've looked at this uh, earlier in the conference. Uh, Lord Kelvin's estimation of the Earth's age. Uh, he did this uh, from, I think, uh, 1860 to uh, 1890s uh, and used a variety of approaches. Uh, his estimate, his first estimate was between 24 and 400 million years. Uh, he had further estimates and uh, by uh, 1892 or something, he, his estimate was uh, one, uh, at most 100 million years for the Earth's age. Uh, a whole lot of other people also did, uh, did estimates and uh, at the same time using a variety of techniques and all got within that interval. Uh, it's now known to be uh, 10 times as big as the, uh, 10 times as old as his oldest estimate. Uh, and he couldn't work it out from uh, his day's theory. It was just impossible. This was a damaging failure of theory uh, because he needed to know uh, about radioactivity. Uh, he used various, the techniques, uh, uh, a couple of examples. One was involving the heat uh, of the Earth and how long it would have taken to cool to this level. Uh, another example was using the temperature gradient between the, uh, the Earth's core and the Earth's surface. If you dig deeper, you can work out how much temperature increase there is per level of depth. Uh, that argument turns out doesn't work because it doesn't take into account the heat generated by radioactivity. Uh, other people also worked out uh, how long the sun could be burning for uh, and found an upper limit of about 100 million years um, because they assumed it was burning, producing its energy from gravity. Uh, and they didn't know about nuclear fusion. So nuclear fusion and nuclear fission were important to a number of these arguments and uh, not knowing about them just meant that it was impossible to, uh, to get this correct. And you'd hope that when he was saying, what's the chance that this paper I've just published is correct, <laughs> he would have taken into account the fact that this theory uh, might not be the be-all and end-all. Uh, most theories are wrong, uh, at least uh, most uh, global theories. So if we're trying to, uh, to do something and find out uh, uh, the complete theory of the world, such that nothing violates it, uh, then uh, there have been a number of attempts at this. There have been, let's say, n attempts, and uh, at most uh, one of these has been correct, probably zero. Uh, most of these are incorrect. Um, not always damagingly, but uh, uh, they tend to be wrong in at least some details. Maybe not damaging, maybe damaging. Uh, and particularly if we push them to the limit, if the calculation involves really pushing that theory right to its limit of what it, its uh, experimental evidence uh, uh, was, uh, then they're much more likely to break. Uh, and to further look at theory inadequacy, uh, we can say that uh, we heard earlier about, uh, about some of the safest ideas in physical theories. Uh, there are certain core concepts, and sometimes you can, you can link your argument right into the core concepts of a theory. 
Uh, an example of this would be uh, conservation of energy. Uh, it seems like an absolutely basic thing that you know, is not going to fail in future theories. Uh, however, uh, even with conservation of energy, which is arguably the safest thing uh, that, uh, that we could have to, uh, to hang our estimates on, uh, conservation of particle number turned out to be false. Uh, this was thought to be true beforehand. In the conflict we looked at uh, 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 earlier, I think it was uh, in Mangano's uh, paper, uh, about uh, uh, where they thought that uh, conservation of energy might have been false. Uh, one of the main reasons they thought that is they didn't even think that conservation of particle number could be false. And that was quite a radical idea to decide that new particles were being created. Um, that was potentially an even safer seeming principle beforehand from the classical era. Um, and it turned out to be, uh, uh, to be wrong. Uh, the, um, uh, as were many tenets of uh, Newtonian mechanics, for example, uh, that the world is completely deterministic, or at least deterministic within one universe, or you know, for the many worlds theorists. Uh, and uh, there are a number of things in Newtonian mechanics which were just wrong and were thought to be absolutely fundamental and, and bedrock. Uh, even conservation of energy is locally violated in uh, quantum vacuum, uh, so we've seen that earlier as well. Uh, not, not violated in any long-term thing, but, uh, and it probably won't be, uh, but if you'd relied on that when building some dangerous experiment uh, that conservation of energy uh, was completely uh, kept, you would have ended up in a lot of trouble. Uh, so uh, now let's look at the model. Uh, within the context of a theory, there is a specific model. Uh, we're using model to include the parameters to that model as one uh, large area, just we don't distinguish them at this point. You could break it down further and look at the chances that the, the parameter is wrong or that other aspects of the model are wrong. Uh, for example, you have a model of subatomic interactions, fields, and forces within a particle accelerator. Uh, that would be a model. Uh, you could also have a model of atmospheric interactions in the Earth's climate. Uh, so you've got a theory, and then within that theory, you say it's a theory about, say, uh, turbulent flow, and then you say, you need a model, again, to, to apply that to work out what will happen in the actual situation. So you, you put in a model. Uh, for the argument to be sound, uh, the model must be adequate. Again, we're not too worried if the model's not infinitely precise. We're just talking about if the model is dangerously inadequate. Um, uh, so uh, an example of uh, model inadequacy, uh, another thing we've already seen, I like the way that quite a few things have been brought back together in this, uh, in this conference, the Castle Bravo experiment. That's a photograph of the Castle Bravo experiment. Uh, it was a thermonuclear bomb uh, uh, detonated in the Pacific. Uh, they modelled uh, the lithium-6 reaction, uh, one of the isotopes of lithium. Uh, however, they uh, completely ignored the uh, reaction in lithium-7, which they thought would be uh, not contributory to the reaction. And uh, uh, this there was an expected yield of 4 to 6 megatons, the actual yield of 15 megatons. Uh, so it turned out that lithium-7 was, was the key to understanding what was going to happen in this bomb, and uh, their model failed because their, their model wasn't broad enough. It only considered the lithium-6 reaction. Uh, they got that wrong. Uh, it they were being very careful. <laughs> there was a lot of money at stake. There was a lot of... Uh, this is important stuff with serious scientists working on it. They just got it wrong. Uh, this happens. We're, we're not blaming the scientists. It's just the point is that this stuff happens, even if you're really good. Uh, uh, we had another example of uh, the model that uh, uh, it's not a scientific model for, for the sake of doing science, but a model for prediction for another area in Lloyd's Insurance where there's a lot of money at stake for predicting Katrina. Uh, the models didn't deal with uh, the levee breaking. Uh, they got it wrong by orders of magnitude in the damage. And another example is the Mars uh, Climate Orbiter. 
where there was a metric to imperial conversion mistake uh, where the, uh, the orbiter uh, was expecting metric and the ground software was using, uh, expecting metric force to be measured in newtons and the other one used pounds for force, which I didn't even know was a measure of force in the imperial system. Uh, now, calculations. Uh, once a model has been chosen, uh, you need detailed calculations to determine if a catastrophe is going to occur. Uh, sometimes uh, uh, calculations are in error uh, and these have to be correct for the argument to be sound. Uh, and we're talking in this case about being completely correct. Uh, so you can get calculation error uh, if you forget a minus at some point in your equations. Uh, a nice example of this is if I were to do uh, a high school maths test, uh, which I'd expect to know all of the material on, uh, I would still think that maybe I'll get 99% instead of 100%. If my life was at stake, if I didn't get all these things right, and I said they said, you can have as long as you want to answer all the questions on this test, I would be taking quite a long time, double-checking everything. If uh, billions of lives were at stake, I would send it to a lot of my friends, get them all to check independently. You can try to get these things better. It's easy to make small mistakes. Uh, this can be helpfully avoided if you're using mathematical tools to check it. Uh, so that, that can be good, using uh, computers to do this. Uh, but calculation error is another issue. Uh, and uh, as an example of this, uh, a life or death uh, situation uh, that happens uh, routinely uh, is when uh, uh, drug doses are made for patients and uh, this is a literal life or death context. Uh, they're very easy calculations, <laughs> often uh, dividing something by uh, 50 or something like that, that's, that's pretty easy, and maybe then adding something on. Uh, and uh, there's been a study of this that found about 1% of them uh, were incorrect. Uh, so uh, th there are a number of, uh, th that's just in the calculation. Uh, more of them were incorrect. Uh, it's about quadruple that if you look at all mistakes. Uh, but calculation mistakes is about 1% of these decisions uh, on drug charts, uh, or between uh, half a percent and 4% across the, the studies. Uh, and just to, to look at general argument failure, one way that you might be able to look at that is through paper retractions. There have been some studies of uh, retractions of published papers. Uh, and of all the papers in, uh, in PubMed, uh, from 1950 to 2004, this is a large uh, database of uh, uh, 9 million articles across 4,000 journals. Uh, it's found that over 1 in 20,000 were retracted. Uh, and uh, this was, uh, you might think, well, of course, there's some rubbish out there that gets retracted. But it was actually more frequent in the high-impact journals. So more of the things we normally think of as good science were getting retracted than the bad science. You might wonder about that. Uh, the most probable reason is that there's more scrutiny of the high-impact journals. And uh, when this was taken into account, uh, from some of the estimates, it looked like it should actually end up being about uh, one in a thousand or one in a hundred uh, that to getting retracted if they're subjected to the same level of scrutiny. Uh, and that's retracted. That's, you've got to be seriously wrong to get retracted. Uh, uh, that's not just arguments that ended up being wrong a hundred years later and we say, we don't blame you, we see where you're coming from, although two competing theories and they each deserve their own papers. Even You couldn't tell at the time which one's correct. This is actual retractions. Uh, so. Uh, so we're talking kind of one in 20,000 or something, you know, or maybe one in 1,000, one in 100. We're not talking one in a million chance or one in a billion chance. The chance that, that the paper is wrong is much higher than some of the probabilities that these things are estimating for disaster. Uh, back to the conditional probability. If we split uh, our probabilities up into theory being correct, the model being correct, and the calculations being correct, actually, sorry, I should say the theory being adequate, the model being adequate, and the calculations being correct, because we don't require perfect precision for the other two. Uh, we can say this as the probability of the argument being correct is the probability that the theory, the model, and the calculations are fine. Uh, 
we can uh, split this up by the laws of conditional probability, uh, like so. And it turns out the third term we can uh, simplify because the probability of the calculation being correct, given the theory and the model being adequate, is just the same as the probability of the calculation being correct anyway. It doesn't require the theory being correct to make your sums come out right, because you're just doing that with your hand. Uh, so it ends up being uh, uh, this thing here. Uh, the probability of the theory being correct multiplied by the probability of uh, uh, the uh, model being correct. Oh, sorry, theory being adequate multiplied by the probability of the model being adequate given the theory is adequate. Uh, multiplied by the uh, probability of the calculations being correct. Uh, and for small values, uh, so when we, we're looking, we reverse these and look at the probability that they're false, uh, to just focus on that. Uh, since we've often got very small values, you can approximate it by adding together these different components. Uh, so the probability of the argument being uh, incorrect is roughly equal to the probability of the theory being incorrect plus the model being incorrect plus the calculations being incorrect because it can go wrong in any one of those ways. This doesn't take into account the fact it can go wrong in multiple of those ways simultaneously, which is a second order effect, but it's, it's roughly correct. Uh, so uh, let's look at the Large Hadron Collider. Uh, we've had uh, some uh, explanation of this already, uh, and it's a very impressive, uh, very large, very expensive piece of machinery. Uh, it's the world's largest uh, particle accelerator, and uh, it's beginning operation this year uh, at the moment. Maybe that'll be pushed back further. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, I, had a, I had a comment here that said uh, that it was unprecedented uh, in its uh, energy level, okay? Uh, but it turns out it may not be unprecedented. There's a whole big question about this, uh, if, if nature has been doing these things already. It's unprecedented on a human level. Uh, risks, black holes, uh, strangelets, uh, we've had talk about these things before. Uh, vacuum collapse is even more hypothetical, uh, or other risks. Uh, there are arguments about this. Uh, one is the Hawking radiation argument, which says, particularly about black holes, that they should be irradiating uh, uh, due to Hawking radiation and disappearing and not causing a problem. Uh, one problem with this is that the theory is quite uncertain, and uh, you'd be brave to say that the probability of the theory being incorrect uh, was uh, less than 1%. Uh, certainly, if you want to say that, I'm happy to make a bet with you as to whether in the journals, within 100 years, they'll say the theory was incorrect. Uh, there's also a cosmic ray argument, which is a, a better argument, uh, safer. Uh, CERN's main argument. Uh, it uh, argues against all the disasters. Uh, cosmic rays regularly achieve the LHC level energies, is the argument. Um, there are a few problems with this uh, to do with anthropic reasoning and uh, low net momentum. Uh, we've heard about these before. They've been corrected for, uh, and uh, it wouldn't have worked without them. There was, a, there was a serious failure of case to consider in both cases, but it has been adjusted for these. Uh, but what's the probability that there's another such problem? So let's just look at this, uh, this argument and talk about a few things about whether the theory, model, and calculations are likely to be correct, or how correct. I think they're likely to be correct. More than a half chance. Uh, uh, so uh, quantum, uh, quantum field theory is the, uh, uh, or some relativistic version of quantum mechanics is the basis behind this. Uh, and uh, we're building the LHC to determine which version of this is correct. So we don't know the theory that's behind it, uh, but maybe we've got it into a small envelope of possible theories. Uh, but we know that we're building it to check if the theory is correct, so we're certainly not completely certain on that. Uh, the paper by uh, Giddings and Mangano uh, uh, allows uh, for several different versions of the theory, um, which is a good feature of the paper uh, that makes it safer. Uh, what is the probability that, uh, that there's a major problem here? Uh, maybe one in 100, one in 1,000 with the theory. If you think in 500 years' time, will we look back and say this theory was, was actually everything and that there was no extra issue? Or are we like people in Newton's time? Uh, 
very hard to estimate, maybe in those kinds of ballparks. Uh, model. Uh, the model is of the LHC uh, and the energies it could produce, uh, but also there's models in the argument of stars and galaxies. There are a whole lot of things to do with, uh, we have to know how many stars there are in order to work out how likely it is that one would already have been hit. We have to know how old they are. We have to know a lot of things about this. Um, both these need to be correct. There are many steps in the reasoning. Uh, in fact, in uh, Dar's uh, early paper on this, there's, uh, there's about 30 steps in a row that we've, we've looked at this. Um, they all need to be correct for it to work. Um, if there was only a one in a thousand chance that each of the numbers and things in each step uh, were incorrect or there was a major missing area, uh, it would still lead to a 3% chance of uh, failure of the argument. Uh, it's, it's similar in the, uh, the newer paper um, uh, by Giddings and Mangano. Maybe there's a one in a hundred chance, maybe one in a thousand chance uh, of, uh, in fact, hmm, is a, yeah, of the model being adequate, uh, inadequate. Uh, what about the calculations being correct? Uh, well, they've been peer-reviewed, which is good, that helps, uh, and uh, possibly electronically checked, we can find out. Uh, maybe one in a thousand uh, chance of incorrect thing in the calculations, maybe one in a hundred thousand. Uh, so if we want to estimate the grey area, we can put these things together. And uh, this is a table where we've got these first three areas make up uh, the probability that the argument fails uh, by a different category, the theory, the model, and the calculation. Put in those upper and lower bounds that, that we've got. Uh, and you get, and then also you have estimates of the probability of the disaster occurring given that the argument doesn't work. Maybe one in a hundred, maybe one in a thousand, maybe one in ten thousand. Uh, and you can get a kind of a range on the probability of X given these things. And you can see that uh, whereas the calculated probability of, of the disaster occurring in the paper was more like uh, one in ten to the power of twenty-two, so amazingly astronomically small, uh, these types of numbers that we get dominate that. So the the grey areas are dominating the risk. If, uh, one way to say that is if the threat occurs, it won't be because a 1 in 10 to the power of 22 event occurred. It will be because the theory was mistaken. Uh, so uh, what's CERN's estimate of the probability that the argument's incorrect? Well, it would be, be good to know. Uh, do they think that the argument is, uh, has a more than, uh, a less than 1 in a million chance that there's a major flaw found? If so, I'm happy to take a bet with them uh, that I'll give them $10, and if a flaw is found in the next 50 years, they'll give me $10 million. Uh, I don't think that they would make that bet. Uh, but these are the numbers that they're using to say that about this risk. So I think policymakers should be uh, somewhat skeptical about this and think about these areas of the argument being wrong. Uh, so uh, in terms of uh, re-evaluating, I'm almost done. Uh, uh, at this level of uh, probability that we've got now, we need to consider the stakes. Uh, in the paper, uh, the safety assessment report, uh, uh, they don't look at the stakes. They don't think about the ethics of future generations, how should we take this to account, because the probability is so small that they think that's not going to be relevant. But if the probability actually ends up as one in a million or something like this from, from our position of uncertainty, uh, then uh, you do have to consider it because the stakes are at least uh, six billion deaths uh, if these disasters occur. Uh, and uh, the value of risk, even if you're risk neutral, it's uh, 6,000 deaths uh, or it's worse in some, uh, some versions of precautionary principle and risk aversion. Uh, it's an important risk. This is the type of risk we actually need to think about and get people to look at, um, including some non-physicists. Uh, CERN needs to investigate it further. Uh, and uh, I agree that experts are needed uh, to do these things, and the appropriate people to judge this should be experts, but not just experts in physics, because there are arguments like this, which philosophers, uh, the group of us, well, we're kind of philosophers and physicists, uh, and neuroscientists, <laughs> uh, have, have come up with, 
uh, seem to be able to show that, that we didn't have the numbers we were looking for. Um, even though the, the paper may well be correct, there's this, probably is, uh, uh, there are these extra chances that it's incorrect and they end up dominating the equations. Uh, and also more work to reduce the gray areas, uh, which you could do um, with, with papers that really try more independent approaches. Uh, ways to reduce gray areas, multiple independent arguments is definitely a good approach and there's some of that definitely already in uh, Giddings and Mangano's paper. Uh, independently verifying uh, the models and calculations is good. Uh, even better is to independently derive the models and calculations rather than just checking someone else's stuff and saying, yeah, that looks right to me, is independently doing it, seeing if you come up with the same thing. Um, get several groups to do that. That's a good way to check things. Uh, wait for the theory is another possibility. Uh, let cosmology continue for a while. Uh, let us uh, find out more information from astronomy without causing any risks and then see if that changes things. Uh, uh, if we're in Newtonian times, Newtonian mechanics, we would have to wait for the theory. It's the only way we'd get these things right. Uh, this could be the, the case again now. Uh, if these things could be reduced enough, uh, we could justifiably start the LHC given what we know. Uh, we're not uh, necessarily against it really. Uh, we're just in favour of looking at the risks appropriately. Uh, uh, further advice in general for uh, catastrophic risk assessments, uh, don't get locked in before the assessment. Uh, in the case of the LHC, it's cost uh, three and a half billion pounds. Uh, once you've paid that, it's a sunk cost. We've spent three and a half billion pounds on this machine. Uh, if you now tell us that it's going to destroy the world, well, <laughs> we're still going to turn this damn thing on. We're not going to spend three and a half billion and not, not turn it on. Uh, you know, there's these sunk cost uh, biases that people have. Uh, it's now pretty much politically infeasible to stop the process, even if it comes out that it's uh, orders of magnitude more likely to cause a disaster than was previously thought. Uh, you need to use an interdisciplinary group uh, because there are benefits like this that, that I think we've been able to add and there'd be probably other benefits that economists would be able to add which I can't think of because I'm not an economist. Uh, this is important. Uh, you need experts but not necessarily just experts in physics. All of the people on the safety assessment group are physicists. Uh, uh, already said that. Uh, and to be careful not to prejudge the issue. Uh, potentially using a red and blue team, setting up your force into two groups, some of which trying to, uh, to argue it is going to happen, some to argue it's not going to happen, get them thinking about this. Uh, and welcome outside criticism is a good move. And uh, as I say, that's cheap interdisciplinarity uh, because you get a whole lot of other people saying, hey, like us, saying, hey, that's not right, there's, there's this thing that needs to be fixed. You know, if you welcome that, then you get this much wider group of people researching these risks. Uh, and that's it. <laughs>